what is it for us to be kingdom-minded as God's people? That we're called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. We're called out of our sin and into uh, knowing Him. And what is it for us to be God's kingdom people? And we've looked at uh, the idea of the kingdom from the book of Matthew. We've looked at Matthew 13 and the parables of the kingdom. We've looked at uh, a lot of different things. But remember that before and after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew kind of summarizes the ministry of Jesus, and, and I've got one of uh, those from Matthew 9, uh, and in, maybe I deleted them all, uh, in Matthew 9, that it was, uh, th- that Jesus is going throughout uh, these, these cities, preaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all all their diseases. And so it's not simply the, the gospel that uh, we profess faith in Christ and have personal salvation. The gospel is the gospel of the reign and the rule of Jesus over all things. Jesus making all things new and all things under his rule in his reign. And so when we come to a passage like Matthew 21, uh, Jesus is going to tell two parables and, but it's all in the context of the kingdom. Because if you would, look at the very beginning of Matthew 21. And if you have a little heading over that passage of scripture, it's the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. Uh, that's not uh, the beginning of 21. But uh, at the very beginning of 21 is Jesus riding into the city. And what are people saying? That the king is arriving. The king has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People in Jerusalem are excited because the king has arrived. Well, Jesus goes from there to the temple, and he clears the temple. He's basically saying, you you are making the temple out to uh, be a a den of robbers, not a house of prayer. And so Jesus, in his kingship, is, is entering in in a way that people aren't quite comfortable with. And then we get to verse 28 and to the end of the chapter where Jesus tells two parables. He's speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to people who are familiar with the things of God. In a sense, if it's modern day, he's he's speaking to people who have grown up in church and quite honestly might be the leaders in churches. And Jesus is speaking right to them and quite honestly, he's speaking right to us. He's speaking to people who have been around the things of God, the people who've grown up in the Bible Belt, and he speaks an indictment on those who are familiar with the things of God, and in so doing, gives the greatest news to people who know that they need God's grace that he could give. And so let's stand as we submit ourselves to the word of God. Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. Jesus says this, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, the son, answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And then he went to the other son and said the same. And he, that son, answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus asked, which of these two did the will of the father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, 
the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, meaning when you saw them believe, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when, uh, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asked. And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let, the vineyard, or let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> They're brilliant, right? Uh, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Hmm. Interesting parables. Let's pray. God, uh, would you teach us by your word? Would you teach us by these two parables that Jesus taught? Would you reveal to us, oh, Father, would you reveal uh, that familiar, familiarity and knowledge of who you are? God does not equal uh, that we treat you and call you as king. Father, would you show us our pride and our arrogance? Father, for those who are sitting here right now, and God, they feel total shame, totally laden down with guilt. And Father, they're thinking uh, that there's no way that this good news of the gospel is for me because this guy has no idea what I've done. Father, would you convince them that your good news is a gospel of grace? It's not, a, it's not good news of the people that fix themselves up are entering the kingdom. It is the ones who run to Jesus in their need are the ones who enter. Father, help us all understand that that's the only way to enter. So, Father, if it's from uh, wanton rebellion or if it's from pride and arrogance in our togetherness, God, none of that matters before you. God, would you flatten it? And bring us all to a place of repenting before you that you might show us your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Back many years ago, uh, there, um, uh, there was a, a debate or a discussion uh, of, of Matt Chandler, who is a pastor in Texas, um, a similar, similar cultural vibe as the South, and, uh, and pastor in Texas, and a friend of his who was a pastor in a kind of a, a metropolis, like kind of one of those urban cities, urban city centers, a very, very, very secular area. And they were debating uh, kind of really more discussing where is it easier for the gospel to take root or to speak the gospel and uh, or, or actually uh, you know one was saying it's easier but, but actually where is it more difficult for the gospel to take root is it in the secular city or in the place where people are familiar with the things of God and uh, so the friend that's in the secular city, of course, was arguing, man, everybody has rejected God. This is a post-Christian culture. Nobody has any, thinks they have any need for God. It is much more difficult for the gospel to take root in a secular city. Where Matt Chandler then turned around and said, no, no, I think it's much more difficult for the gospel of God's grace to take root in the Bible Belt where everybody knows the message, where everybody is familiar with the things of God, and they kind of went back and forth playfully, and I would actually agree with Chandler. I would agree that where the, where the knowledge of the things of God is high, that almost stands in opposition to God's grace and the gospel taking root in people's hearts. And I think, God, I think Jesus is, is kind of speaking right to that. You know, we would think the secular city where everybody's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, just distancing themselves from the things of God, that's the place where it would be difficult. But here's the beautiful thing about a secular city that has rejected the things of God. At least you know where you stand, right? Think of it even of going to uh, like a, a, a Muslim country in Iraq. Okay? You go to Iraq, you know where people stand. They either have rejected Jesus and serve uh, another God, or they have bowed their knee to him. There's no middle ground, right? Now, people can die for their faith there. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is very clear. And so in that sense of clarity, I would submit to you, it's in that clarity that it would be actually easier to know where you are. It's in this this kind of muddy, murky water of the Bible Belt that everybody calls himself a Christian. Everybody says, yep, I serve and follow God. And yet, do people really know him? Know him? Jesus is speaking right to uh, this, this culture because that's the nation of Israel. They were very familiar with the things of God. They knew uh, the, the, the things of God. They knew, they knew knowledge. They knew the Bible. They knew all these things. Yet... There's a deep danger in good appearances because that's what's going on with the people that Jesus is speaking to. So the first parable is that of two sons. So a father comes to his two sons. He comes to the first one and he says, hey, I want you to go over here. First son says, no. <laughs> okay, not exactly the, a faithful answer to, uh, to a father. He says no, but then later he decides to say, you know what? I changed my mind and I'm going to go. Then he comes to, the, to another son. He says, I want you to go over there. And, the, and that son says, oh, sure, Dad, I'll go. But then he never goes. Jesus asks the religious, and let me say this, that religion never saved anyone. 
Religion is you feeling like God owes you something because you've sacrificed, because you've done certain religious duties. Religion has never saved anyone. But the religious, the religious uh, are, are the ones who would say, yes, I will go. And yet in their hearts, they have not surrendered to the things of God. And so, so Jesus is speaking to these people, and, and, uh, and, and he's speaking to a people that think they have their act together. They think they have their act together. What, do they, what, what does this, uh, th- these people do? They, they know the things of God. They can recite the things of God. They can answer all the questions right, yet what's going on is their heart is far from God. It's far from him. And so in uh, Ezekiel 33, uh, there's an interesting passage in Ezekiel 33, kind of highlighting what God's people have tended to do. Okay, And uh, it says, as for you, son of man, now, that is not Jesus, even though that phrase gets ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament, that is Ezekiel the prophet. So as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the, Lord, what the word is that comes from the Lord. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Come hear what God is saying. Go to the next, the next verse there. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with loving talk, actually the ESV translates it lustful. I think it's kind of like the, the, the words of, uh, of, of a, a love one to another, like a, like, um, a romantic relationship. And that's why I changed that. It just helps it understand what we're talking about. For with loving talk, in their mouth they act, and their heart is set on their gain. Keep going. And, and behold, you are to them like one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Whoo! God's people around the things of God, hearing these beautiful words that are coming at them, even enjoying the beautiful words. Man, that Ezekiel, he can tell a story. He's a good preacher. I like how he preaches. I like that. Oh, this, th- we got the best music in town. And uh, all of these things just washing over them, the word of God coming to them through the prophet, yet they will not do anything that he says. That's the picture that's the picture of God's people. Uh, go back to Matthew 15, where, where Matthew is quoting Isaiah 29, and this is, uh, this is what is said of God's people. The nation of Israel, these people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And uh, one scholar would say that the translation of that last phrase is that their teachings are but rules taught by men. So this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that is the danger of familiarity with the things of God. 
This could be, and he is speaking to the people that have grown up in Israel, that have grown up around the things of God. These are the covenant people of God. But I don't think it's very difficult to think that he's speaking to you and me as well. If you've been around at all the things of God, you've been around a church, you're knowledgeable about the things of God, are, could this possibly be you? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's an indictment on the people who would call themselves Christians, yet they have never surrendered their life to Jesus. Do you hear how this could really fit the Bible Belt well? <laughs> people that honor me with their lips, but yet in their life they are far from me. And so the danger of appearances, uh, the danger there is that, uh, that, that you say the right things. There's a togetherness in our faith and in, our, in our, the way that we live. In a sense, it's the, it's the religious that have words of acceptance, but ultimately it leads them to resistance. But as much as it's an indictment against people that say the right thing and then never bow their knee, how is that good news for the other group? People who would actually resist God at first and then come back to him. God is calling out the people who say the right things and then never surrender. At the same time, the good news of grace comes to those who say, you know what? I don't want to follow you at all, Jesus. But then, then they return. They change their mind and return to him. It is them. It is if you know Christ, it is you, it is me, the one who said, I'm going to go my own way, but then God brings us back in terms of repentance. So rather than um, words of acceptance leading to resistance, it is resistance then leading to repentance. It is, it is the idea of us actually turning and, and turning back to the things of God. What's the word that Jesus used in Matthew 21? In verse 29, he said, and he answered, I will not. That's the first son. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. The word change there is the same word that we use uh, for the idea of repentance. Uh, it's, it's the, I'm heading one direction, and there's a change of mind, a change of heart. I turn from one thing to another. They changed, they turned from the thing they were pursuing back to the things of God. And that's grace. Grace that God receives the ones who have turned their back on him. And yet, he says, who are they? They're the ones that would enter the kingdom of heaven. For verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Jesus said in the verse before that, in 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. The stark picture is that the religious person, the person that's familiar with the things of God, feels pretty good about themselves. They feel that their life is together, and they feel like, okay, I'm closer to the, the kingdom of God than those who are living in just total rebellion against God. Like God says this, and I'm going to do this. Those people are out, and yet the, the together group thinks they're in. And Jesus says it's exactly the opposite. 
your pride is the very thing that's keeping you out of the kingdom. And it's the repentance of the people who have rejected God and then come back. It's the repentance of the people uh, that have come back. They are the ones who receive eternal life. They're the ones who enter the kingdom. Grace drives people nuts if you think about it. Because in America, we love to pride ourselves on we get what we earn, right? I work hard, I get paid for it. I study hard, I, I put my effort out in, in, in school, and I get a good grade. My good grades get me a scholarship. My scholarships get me into college. My good work in college gets me a good job. And that's how we pride ourselves. Grace says none of that. Grace says all you deserve is to be out of the kingdom. But yet you are welcomed in. What does grace say? Is you have no rights. Because you've earned nothing. That's good news to the person who knows they're on the outside. It's bad news to the person that thinks their togetherness has them in the kingdom of God. And the, and the good news of the gospel is that both of those are flattened. Both the, the behavior that is way outside of the will of God and the person who is, is uh, kind of welled up with a sense of pride in their togetherness, Jesus flattens both of those and said, the way into the kingdom is repentance. Regardless of what behavior or what trap you're caught in, the only way is to get out of yourself and come to him. So the danger of good appearance, appearances is the good news that leads us to grace. But then there's a danger of the good life, okay? So let's look at that next parable. So the next parable is a landowner, has a piece of land. He puts together and, and he kind of grows a vineyard, puts a wall around it, puts a tower around it, puts a wine press there. Uh, he builds this magnificent vineyard, and then he goes to another country. And he lets tenants come in and run his vineyard, okay? And so what would, the, what would the landowner expect from those tenants is basically a portion of the crop in terms of rent or in terms of like, uh, you know, this is what you're going to give me for the right to use this property or this wine press. So the landowner goes away, and so uh, it's time for the harvest, and he sends his servants to go get you know, the, the fruits that, uh, that are grown in the vineyard and to get his share. And so what do, the, what do the tenants do to those servants? They beat one, they kill another, and they stone one of the others, okay? They say, nah, we're not going to give you the fruit that you deserve. And so the, the landowner then sends another round of servants, more this time, and they kill all of them. And then he says, well, they will definitely listen to my son. And he sends his son to these people, and they, uh, they kill the son as well in order to take the vineyard. Okay? The application is not difficult to understand. Okay? The landowner is God the Father. There's, there's kind of, oftentimes it's a question of, what do the parables mean? This one's pretty obvious. The landowner is God the Father. The tenants in the vineyard are God's people, the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. And he sends his servants, he sends his prophets to that nation. And what do they do to the prophets? They kill them. He sends more prophets. What do they do to them? 
They kill them. And then after a time, he sends his son. Certainly they'll listen and honor my son. And they kill the son. And so then he turns to those same people, those same religious leaders who are hearing that story. And his question is really interesting. The question Jesus asked them is, comes in verse uh, 39, uh, sorry, 40. Uh, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? It's not a hard question. The answer falls right out of the story. What will the owner do to the tenants that have killed the servants, more servants, and his son? And the religious leaders answer, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. They condemn themselves. Because Jesus is saying, this is you. What will God the Father do to the people that he sent his prophets to that continually rejected the word of God? And they say, we will come to a miserable end before God. What's really interesting about this is, um, it is, is just... What do the people have? What do the tenants have um, without the landowners blessing them with it? What would they have without the landowner? They would have nothing. So everything that they have has been given to them. It's the danger of the good life that they have been given everything. They've got good cars, they've got a nice house, they've got a loving family, they've got really successful kids, they, they've got 401ks, they've got retirement figured out, they have everything. But it's all a gift. And what do they do? They want to take credit for it. It's much like, um, I don't have this on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 to 14. So Deuteronomy 8 is before God's people go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 8 is this, and, and God is bringing them from slavery and wandering and into a great land. So Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. It's not going to be on the screen. He says this, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest or else when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. Isn't it interesting? When the good life comes, isn't it interesting that God's people can so easily forget God? There's another passage that talks about vineyards that you did not build, houses that you did not construct, all of these things that you did nothing to get, God gives them to you, and the, and the danger is that we forget the Lord our God. The downside of being, uh, in a sense, of having the blessing and the provision of God is that so easily we can forget him. We, we put our trust in the good life rather than in God himself. The landowner gives them everything, and then they want to take as if they were the ones who were in charge. 
What do the tenants want? The tenants want to be in charge, and the tenants really want to live as if they're the owner. Isn't that the human condition? We are all tenants on this planet. We have been given an amazingly good gift in this world, and yet we all want to live as if we're the owner. We all want to say, you know what, landowner, God, you can take a hike, and I am going to take this because it is mine. The tenants want to be in charge. The tenants want to be the owner. And so the danger of the good life is people who want to be in charge of their own life. And so God is coming and he's speaking to them and to us. He's saying, he, he sends his prophets and, and they drive them out and they kill them. He sends more prophets to speak to them and they kill them. He sends his son and he kills, they kill him. What is God doing? He's saying, he's saying, we, we, you need to come out of the sense of rebellion. You need to come out of that sense of uh, thinking you're in charge and everything that you have is yours. And you need to come back to me. Well, on the first time when they kill the servants, if you're a landowner, how do you respond? Do you send more servants? I wouldn't. But the long-suffering God does. And then he sends more servants and they kill them. And if you're a landowner and now they've killed two rounds of your servants, do you, how do you respond? Do you send more people to speak to them and to, you know, surely we can reconcile and we can heal this. Most definitely sending my son would work. No, we would go, we get the law, the law's on our side, and we're going to drive those, those uh, silly guys out of our vineyard and we're going to get our vineyard back. I couldn't think of a better phrase quickly on <laughs> the phrase that came to my mind. We're not exactly church going. Uh, and um, <laughs> sorry. But that's the, that's the phrase that those wretches will find a wretched end is exactly what's going on there. Just said with better vocabulary. If I was a landowner, I would not be long suffering like God the Father who would send a prophet and call his people to repentance, and they cast him off. He would send more prophets to call them to repentance and back to, recon to reconcile with him, and they cast him off. He sends his son. Surely they'll listen to him, and they kill him. The long-suffering of God is the beautiful call for all of us to come and repent. Because the sadness of the first story when the sons is that when tax collectors and prostitutes, those who are would be obviously outside of the visible people of God. When they're believing in Jesus and coming, the religious leaders see that and they still don't believe. They see people repent and come to Jesus and then they themselves don't come. It's there that, that the long-suffering of God, God is looking for relationship. He is longing not just to get exact justice. He is actually calling people to himself and have you rejected the very thing that could be and is your life because here's back in Matthew 21 the danger of the good life meets the good news of Jesus so in Matthew 21 Jesus says these interesting verses and he, he's quoting he's like have you never read this knowing that these guys have they probably have this memorized have you ever read this? That the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes? 
that the very one that these people have cast aside is the very one that they absolutely needed. And But yet, we will go to great lengths to reject any truth that challenges us. Are you sitting here this morning? And Jesus is saying, the entrance into the kingdom of God is right in front of you. It is to come to him, to, to repent and come back to him as the living God. And yet, you, yet much like tenants and, and the sun and all these different things, we're doing everything that we can to push that truth away. That's the human condition. We don't like the truth of God that, that, that pushes against our strong-held beliefs or, or our strongholds in our life. When God's word challenges us, we don't like it, and we want to push it aside. Are you one who is taking that foundation, that stone, that cornerstone, and just tossing it aside? Because the danger of the good life is found and it meets the good news of Jesus. He's the one that you have to build on. He's the one that will only, uh, is the one who will uh, satisfy your soul and the only one that you could build anything on. What's interesting is verses 44 and following really depict the, the nature of what rejection of Jesus looks like. And the one who falls on this stone, meaning trips over um, or trips over Jesus, he'll be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, maybe when the, when the stone falls, it will crush him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they said, man, we know he's talking about us. Is Jesus talking about you? Are you one that, you know what, the truth of who Jesus is, is right now pushing against who you are and what you say and how you live and, and uh, who is God of your life? Are you trying to be like much of those people and just kind of brush it aside, push it aside, or are you one that is going to say, you know what, he's the stone that I have to build on? Because in Isaiah 53, it's interesting that it says that he, Jesus, was despised and rejected. He was, he was cast off, uh, but it was by his wounds or by his, uh, his being beaten, by his being stricken, we are healed. So the one that people cast off is the one that can heal your heart. Have you surrendered to him? Because there is no other way into the kingdom of God. It's not in your togetherness. It's not in your church attendance. The only way into the kingdom is to surrender to King Jesus, to call him Lord and build on, the, build on him as the foundation of your life. Have you done that? Or are you possibly one that says the right things with your lips but have never, uh, that may uh, actually are far from him in your heart? Where are you? The entrance to the kingdom is for those who are willing to repent and humble themselves and see the grace of God, not for those who have their act together and feel like they think that God owes them something. The good news of the gospel is the good news of grace. Let's pray. Uh, God, I pray that you would um, take your word in these parables. Father, that you would draw people to yourself. God, that you would 
get us outside of ourselves, and God, that you would um, draw us. Uh, God, would you um, help us to uh, not be like the religious that think, think we have our, our act together and our pride? Father, I pray that we would know that we have entrance into the kingdom because we've humbled ourselves, because we have repented, because we have given up all our own uh, feelings of togetherness and we've come to Jesus, that we can build on that, that God, that we have come to know him. Father, have we done that? Would you draw people in this room to know you? And Father, if we maybe have come to know him, yet we might be in that place of honoring with our lips, yet our heart is far. Would you draw us back uh, and that we might know the glory and the beauty of the kingdom and the good news of the kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name.